Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from TurboTax Live. New from TurboTax. Now you can get a personal review of your tax return with a CPA or EA right on your screen. Talk live with a tax expert as often as you need for tax advice to help you file with confidence. Go to TurboTaxLive.com. Motley Fool Answers is also brought to you by Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar energy projects across the U.S. With Wonder, you can help finance renewable energy projects while earning up to 7.5% annually. To get started, visit wondercapital.com. And that's Wonder with a U, by the way. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. This is Motley Fool Answers, and while it may not sound like it, this is Allison Southwick, and I am joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp. Uh, we're both really sick. We are. I'm not quite as voice-impaired as you are. At least, I don't think I am. Uh, you sound great, by the way. You sound great. Some people say I. Some people today have said that I sound sexy. Some people have said that I uh, d- don't sound sexy <laughs> at all. So, anyway. Both can be true. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Tomorrow is Valentine's Day, so today we're going to talk about managing money with your schmoopy. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. I guess. <laughs> I'm on some drugs. Let's see how this goes. All right, bro, what's up? You and I, I well, actually, I have been pretty much in a coma for the last week, and so what did I miss? Did I miss anything? <laughs> <laughs> not too much, not too much. The market has just continued to keep going up as it has for the last few oh, years. That's, that's great. <laughs> oh, kidding about that, actually. Oh, nuts. What that's happened? That's not what happened. Well, actually, uh, so I wrote on February 2nd an article for my Rural Retirement Service about how great January was. And it was the best January for the SP 500 since 1997, the best January for the Dow since 1987. Things were looking really good for this year. I also pointed out that there were two rough days at the end of January, and it broke a, a streak of days where the market did not have back-to-back losses of more than 0.5%. That streak had been going on for over 300 trading days, twice as long as the previous streak. It just went for a long time where you didn't have back-to-back losses. Uh-huh. But I also pointed out on February 2nd that one streak that was still going on was that we did not have a day where the market dropped 3% from the previous close. And that streak was an all-time record as well. That was on February 2nd. What happened on February 5th? The market dropped 4%. And now, since then, the market has gone down continually, sort of, up and down here and there, but now to where we are in correction territory, meaning that the market is down off 10% from its high. And I think it's shocking for people because, for the most part, it has been an incredibly unvolatile market, a very smooth ride in this bull market. And so the last week or so has been a little shocking for people. I appreciate that you said that the market is off 10%. Well, you said 4% and then we're in correction territory, it's off 10%. Because the headlines were, Dow suffers largest point drop in the history of human suffering, you know, and so, but the Dow is so high right. that yeah, you're going to see a large point drop. But in the grand scheme of things, the percentage drop was not as bad as the headlines maybe made it sound. Right. So, a thousand point drop does sound very bad, but when you have the Dow doubling in a little bit more than five years, it's not quite so bad from a percentage standpoint. It was something like the 103rd, 104th worst day since 1900. That's still pretty rough, but that's not as bad as the worst day 
ever. So how should our listeners feel? Well, I should feel, first of all, they should feel like this is normal. This is what the market usually is like. So according to American Funds, from 1900 to 2016, a stock market decline of 5% has on average occurred three times a year. You can expect a 10% drop about once a year and a 20% or more drop every three and a half years. But we haven't seen it in a decade. This is just what happens in the stock market, so people should accept that this is what happens. Now, as always, though, it's never too late to rebalance. If you're in a situation where you need the money in the next few years, if you're getting close to retirement or you're in retirement, it's not a bad idea to take some money out of the stock market. Don't worry that it's down 10%. It's still not too late to rebalance, especially since even despite this 10% drop, by most measures, the market is still overvalued. The good news about what has happened over the last several weeks is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons people think the market has gone down is because interest rates have gone up. That can be bad for companies, but it can be good for other types of investments. So, for example, the one-year treasury, most boring investment in the world, now yields almost 2%, providing a yield it hasn't yielded since January of 2008. So, in other words, the safest investment in the world is now offering the best return it's had in a decade. So, for money you need in the near term to protect the one-year treasury is a great solution. You can usually get them commission-free from your broker or directly from Uncle Sam at treasurydeck.gov. So, I think that's the way to play it. Protect what you need in the near term, but just expect, accept that 10% declines are just part of normal business for being a stock investor. All right, what's the worst thing that someone should do amidst this volatility? Think that they can move money to the sidelines and wait till things calm down. You hear variations like that all the time. I'm going to move to the money to the sidelines until things calm down a little bit. Which means cashing out your stocks and keeping a larger hoard of cash. Right. right? And so you you basically have to know when things have calmed down in the stock market. And good luck with that. Nobody really knows. Yeah, that was a lot of the headlines were like, oh, the drop was spurred by inflation fears, or the drop was spurred by some sort of ETN. Right. Which I don't want you to bother explaining right now, going haywire. <laughs> to what extent does it even matter? As individual investors, we can't really impact that or you know have an effect there. Should you just be like, ugh, it did it because it did it? Right. And you no one first of all, no one really knows why the market goes down. And even if you could figure out whatever that event was, you're not gonna be able to predict it before everyone else can. And cash in on sorry, it. Sorry, you're not that smart. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk too, also about how much of this is due to computers and you know, all the high frequency trading, and anywhere from 50% to 70% of trading in any given day is actually done by computers. Are you going to outguess what all those computers are going to do? Probably not. Hold on to good companies. Hold on to good dividend payers if you're retired. Know that whatever the situation is going on today, 10, 20 years from now, you're going to be happy that you held on. So basically, your advice is uh, take money out and don't take money out of the market. <laughs> take money out that you need in the next three to five or seven years if you're a little more conservative. But any money that you do not need for any time period, getting close to a decade or longer, you're going to be happy that you held on. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from TurboTax Live. New from TurboTax. Now you can get a personal review of your tax return with a CPA or EA. What does EA stand for? Enrolled agent, which is something that I think you have to take a test with the IRS to get that seal of approval. Okay. 
Now you can get a personal review of your tax return with a CPA or EA right on your screen. Quickly connect to a tax expert via one-way video as often as you need for answers and advice on your taxes. You can even have an expert review your return before you file, make any necessary changes, and have it all backed with a 100% accuracy guarantee. File with complete confidence. Connect with a TurboTax Live expert today at TurboTaxLive.com. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Love. Bro, what are you going to do for your schmoopy? Uh, we're pro- classic, probably go out to dinner. I mean, we're at this point where our kids are teenagers and we are appreciating the fact that pretty soon they're going to be out of the house. So I think what we'll actually do is try to do something with the kids. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, well, we like our kids. Uh, How about you? Every Valentine's Day, I make my daughter and uh, my husband uh, rice aroni meatballs. That they really love. <laughs> so romantic. It's so romantic. Uh, but that Hannah looks forward to it for weeks. Um, so, yeah, right, some rice aroni meatballs. And um, uh, Ron is get, Ron really loved his um, beer advent calendar that I did for him for Christmas, <laughs> which I did similarly for Rick. So I got him six mystery beers for him to unwrap um, every day. And Hannah really likes it, too, because she gets to unwrap it. So um, You were very thoughtful. Uh, sometimes, yeah. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, so nothing super exciting. Like, I don't know, maybe Ron will get me flowers, maybe not. That's cool. It's kind of a made-up holiday anyway. <laughs> uh, you have been taking financial therapy classes, and I don't know if your professor planned this on purpose, but you had a lot of reading to do these last couple weeks around couples and cash. Yes, yeah, so I'm getting my graduate certificate in financial therapy from Kansas State, and really it was coincidental that in this last class I'm now taking, I had to do a bunch of reading on couples and the cash. And as we were talking about what to do for this episode, I thought, well, certainly after reading the 10 to 20 articles that I plan to write, I'll be able to pull out a few yeah. tidbits. So what I found out was five things to know about... <laughs> tidbits is a funny word. Tidbits. <laughs> You don't like uh, tidbits? No, I just think the day quill's kicking in. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, oh well, it just going. gets better so from let's, here. Let's, let's let's get your, let's get some love and love and money tidbits. Tidbit number one. All right, so five things to know about marriage money, and then five things to do about. It. So number one, I guess my first question was: We all hear that money is like the number one reason people get divorced, the number one cause of of conflict in marriages. So my first question was, is that really true? And so number one, is money the, the number one source of tension in marriage? And the answer is probably, but the, the results weren't quite as conclusive as I thought they would be. So there is research that, that found, for, for example, that 70% of all divorces cite money is the reason. Um, there is research so that couples that fight on a weekly or daily basis about money are more likely to get divorced than people who have a few disagreements over the course of a month. Um, How often do people fight? Well, some people some people fight like, a lot. Fight period. Like, well, that's that is a good question, and that comes to well, we'll get to that later. Okay. But so there there is a question of whether I just can't imagine fighting with my spouse twice a week about anything. <laughs> I don't know, Rick. How often do you fight with your spouse? What is fighting? <laughs> You you guys are such lovely, beautiful um, people that I can't imagine the Engdahls fighting at all. No. I cannot imagine that. I can just imagine them just being like, you know what, honey? When you um, 
leave your harps and your guitars out. I feel <laughs> like um, maybe we should jam for a while, and then you guys just like play some folk songs and smooch. Can you fight when you have a harp? I don't think it's possible. You know, this this is probably too much of a story, but we have a friend up in a friend of mine from college up in New Jersey, and she had a daughter who was about five or six at the time. And this is before we had kids. But they were coming to visit us, and it was the first time they were coming down to visit. And we had been up there before and played our music and blah, blah, blah. And she got, That's the tone that they fight in, by the way. That was it. <laughs> she, they, they came down, and when the daughter entered our house, she kind of looked around, and, and she was cr- a little bit crestfallen. She was a little disappointed, and she said, I, th- I thought your house would be full of flowers and (laughs) (laughs) right you enter the door and your wife places like a flower garland on your hair and like we live at the renaissance festival i I, I could totally understand a couple fairies blowing bubbles yes turns out that's not exactly how we live Uh, it's more like a metalhead situation going on in the engel house we'll just let your we'll stick with your imagined uh (laughs) view of what our, our lives are like. It's a, yeah. it's a nice picture. All right. Sorry. That was a bit of a digression. But, but still, it seems like that that would be a lot to f- be fighting about anything, let alone money. Yes, that's true. And and as I'll talk about a little bit later, there's some question about whether money is the real reason people are fighting or it's just that people are fighting yeah. and money is the thing they've decided to fi- fight about. But regardless, uh, other studies found that one third of couples who receive marriage counseling reported having financial issues as one of the problems. Uh, but there are studies that have found not really a very strong connection between money and conflict or money and divorce, which again gets to this point, well, maybe it's not really just about money. Uh, and another interesting part about this is that studies have found that arguments about money are a little different in that they tend to be more intense, they often last longer, um, and they often retread old topics. So old topics keep getting brought up. So there is something about money that um, is important or contentious about marriages. Number two, though, is that money and marriage is not all bad news. And the fact is that for most people, on average, being married is good for your financial well-being. So married couples have higher incomes than any other family form, so meaning higher than people who live on their own or people who are living together but are not married. Um, people who are married tend to have higher levels of investments, higher levels of wealth, less debt, um, and there's some belief about it that, um, and they're more likely to be saving for retirement. And there's some belief about making that commitment, that public commitment about getting married, makes people more likely to invest, more likely to buy a house, more likely to do things that will pay off over the long term versus people who are single or people who are just living together and not like, I don't know if I want to buy a house with you quite yet. So that's the good news. Number three, so what determines whether a couple is going to fight about money or not? And the truth is, money actually can buy happiness to a degree in a marriage. So there's plenty of evidence that shows that couples with higher incomes, higher levels of wealth, um, less debt, are more likely to be happier, more likely to find satisfaction in the marriage, and less likely to fight about it. One interesting study I found said that income, once you sort of take out other, incorporate other measures of financial well-being. Income isn't actually important. What it really means is what you do with the money that you make. So even if you're not making quite so much money, if you are saving it and staying out of debt, you're more likely to be happy and less likely to fight about money. Um, 
And another study found that couples who engage in sound financial practices, so budgeting, saving, getting enough insurance, are more likely to be happy, even compared to other couples of the same level of financial wellness and wealth. The people who are doing these sort of just good day-to-day financial chores are more likely to be happy. Uh, one thing I would say, though, it does get to a point where all that stuff doesn't really explain happiness. So, for example, the difference between a couple that makes twenty-five thousand dollars and a couple that makes fifty thousand dollars, there's going to be a big difference in their overall satisfaction because they're not going to be experiencing so much financial stress. Difference between a couple making two hundred thousand dollars and two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars is not going to be so much. So at some point, money doesn't really explain the difference. So what does explain it? And this becomes comes to point number four: being financially compatible is important. So there's a couple of studies that classified people as either tightwads or spenders. And my first reaction was, I haven't heard the term tightwad. Tightwad, that's yeah, in a long time. But uh, Basically, do you see yourself as a tight water spender and see your spouse as a tight water spender? It seems like it's a spectrum. Do I have to put myself in one or the other? It is, and you're right. It is a spectrum. And the interesting thing about the spectrum is, first of all, the the most interesting thing is opposites often attract. So what they found was people who were tightwads were often attracted to the spenders and vice versa, especially if they were not satisfied with their own attitudes. So let's say you were a spender but you knew that you probably are spending too much, you are more likely to be attracted to someone who is a tightwad and vice versa. The problem is, though you might be attracted to each other, once you get married, that can be a problem. So the, the greater the distance on that spectrum of tightwad to spender, the greater chance that you're going to argue about money and there are going to be problems down the road. And there was also another study that analyzed people's, basically their materialistic tendencies and found that people who uh, score higher on this score of materialism, chances are they're going to be less happy being married. All right, tidbit number five. Number five. So if it's not about money, it's about... Want to take a guess? Uh, I don't want to say sex on our show, because I don't think we've ever said that word on our show. You said sexy earlier in the show. Yeah, but I didn't. that's like different than saying yeah. sex. But I said it again! <laughs> What is it? Just say what the answer is. It is the byproduct of sex. Kids. <laughs> <laughs> you just made it worse. At least according to oh, one study. Kids. 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 So this is one of those studies that found... <laughs> I think Rick can't breathe. He's laughing so hard. Are you going to be okay, buddy? Okay. <clears throat> Anyway, so one study, what it did is they found they had 100 couples keep a diary and write down all the times they had any sort of conflict. And money was, not, was number five and number six on the list, depending on if it was the husbands or the wives. Number one was actually kids. And the next was chores, then communication and leisure. But it, this study also confirmed again that while money wasn't the most common issue or a common contentious issue, the fights about it were more intense, and were, they sort of lasted longer. Um, and another study found that uh, women with children living in the home were nearly twice as likely to report being a money-arguing couple. And then another study, actually the tightwad spender study, found that for men, not women, but for men who had three or more children, they're more likely to uh, find themselves engaged in sort of financial arguments. So the point here is not that you shouldn't have kids. 
point is, I think that if you are married, you should make sure that you are on a firm financial setting and you're you're comfortable in the relationship before you have kids. All right, so that was five t- tidbits. Yes. What? And you said you had five other other things. Five Your solutions. Your intro was not like really <laughs> promise heavy. It was kind of nebulous. So five and five solutions. Five solutions. Sort okay. of five five takeaways, more action oriented okay. types of things. So right. number one, the boring stuff can lead to marital bliss. Uh, there was a study that uh, got it looked at 64 couples who identified themselves as having great marriages and looked at their financial habits. And basically, it came down to number one. One partner tended to handle the financial day-to-day stuff, um, but with a lot of communication and trust from the other partner. Number two, they did not have much debt, and they made that a priority to stay out of debt. And number three, very related, they lived below their means and they were frugal. So just taking care, care of those sort of basic financial tasks can make uh, increase the chances that you'll be happily married. Number two, Share the power and the decisions. One of the issues with money, when you look at where the problems come from, they come from power. And the, power, the imbalance of power can come from several things. It can be difference in income, difference in age, difference in education or financial literacy. But basically, often comes where one person feels like the other person is not treating them fairly. In fact, there, some of the studies have indicated that uh, Couples that fight the least are the ones that are more equal in terms of their incomes, and that having a big disparity in income can cause problems. Not all the time, but it's just an imbalance of power. So that to be aware of those things so that each person feels like they have input, control, and they're treated fairly. And number three, communication is the key. Some studies have found, at least one in particular, has found that all the fights about money are not really about money. These people are just, they do not communicate well. And working on communication is a big part of it. Some of the things that I came across as particular pieces of advice is um, when you look at marriage and the studies of marriage, one of the big names out there is a guy named John Gottman. And he has found that the happiest couples have have a five to one ratio of saying nice things to each other versus negative things. And he also has a uh, basically a framework of called the harsh startup where are you going into a conversation with something negative or a criticism? And a study followed up on that and found that couples that begin conversations with these harsh startups startups are more likely to argue about money, not resolve the issues, and then have problems down the road. Number four is to get financial help. So for when you have a couple that can't agree on money, it's often helpful to get a good financial advisor, or as now I'm studying, a, could be a financial therapist. They could just call you up on the phone. <laughs> I'm not quite a financial advisor yet. But uh, one interesting thing that I learned reading about some of these studies is that you got to find a good financial advisor. And there's evidence that when a couple comes in to see a financial advisor, the financial advisor more often talks to the man mm. than the woman. Um, so you want to have someone who is obviously treating both members of the couple as equal, not because treating one, I don't know, giving more deference to one than the other because maybe one person is the main breadwinner or something like that. Yeah. And if you are having, part of it is a relationship issue. Having the financial advisor is good because you get that objective advice, the objective opinion. If you and your spouse cannot agree on how to handle a financial issue, getting a good financial advisor can help that. But if you're having problems with your marriage, 
that's not going to solve that. And that's where you need to get some sort of marriage counseling as well. And then the last piece of advice, at least that occurred to me, and that is, it was to basically teach your children well. And when I, as I was reading through all these studies, I'm thinking like, well, I've, I've tried to do, and my wife and I have tried to do some things where we teach our kids about investing, about staying out of debt. We've told them about the studies about people who have high credit scores and marry people with high credit scores more likely to be happy. But I haven't really thought about it in terms of like handling your money is good for your marriage. It's going to increase the chances that you'll live happily ever after as much as possible. And I think that put a whole new like emphasis on the importance of teaching kids about how to handle money. I think going forward, whenever we're going to say kids, we should just say sex byproduct. (laughs) We've been teaching our sex byproducts to be more financially responsible. (laughs) Or SBPs for sure. (laughs) SBPs. And I should say that I mean, I in everything I talked about, I could have referenced many studies, but I didn't want to do all that. But if you want to read more about this, the best place to go is the Journal of Financial Therapy. It's online and it's free. So check that out. You'll find lots of great articles on this topic. So there you have it. Five little tidbits about couples and cash and then what you can do to be better with money. Uh, what's your next class going to be for financial? This is therapy? the last class oh. after this class. This is this is basically about relationships and money. After this, I get my certificate. I have graduated. And then what? I don't know. I think I'll just sit on it for a while. I mean, I'm happy with my job here at the Fool. I'm not going to go out and become a financial therapist, but it's nice to know. For I think really what it is is emphasized for me the importance of. It's just such a recognition that money management has so much to do with behavior management and psychological psychological issues being tied into money that I think I'll just have a greater appreciation of it and probably find more ways to include it in my writing and maybe in our podcast. Maybe in the show, so stay tuned. (laughs) Motley Fool Answers is supported by Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar energy projects across the U.S. Bloomberg New Energy Finance estimates that $2.8 trillion will be invested in solar energy by 2040. And with Wonder Capital's solar investment platform, individuals can now take advantage of this economic opportunity. In fact, individuals like you have already financed more than 150 large-scale solar projects. These solar energy projects create enough energy to power the equivalent of 5,000 homes, which helps offset almost 75 million pounds of carbon dioxide emissions each year. Visit wondercapital.com fool, and again, that's wonder with a U, to find out how you can begin investing in solar energy projects while earning up to 7.5% annually and also helping in the fight against climate change. Again, that's wondercapital.com fool. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. It must be love, love, love. It must be love, love, love. Are you suffering from anxiety, insomnia, trembling, nausea, heart palpitations, a sense of euphoria, or intrusive thoughts of longing? Congratulations! You might be suffering from love sickness. We are sick, and it's Valentine's Day, so (laughs) let's talk about the oldest ailment in the book, love sickness. All right, you guys, think about the last time you really felt those butterflies in your stomach. Remember? Uh, Bro, you were surrounded by nuns, I believe. (laughs) Why? Do you want to explain to our listeners why? (laughs) 
Well, there are many possible answers to that question, but uh, are you saying because I was at the seminary at one point? I don't know what you mean. Because you met your wife while teaching at a school. Yes, that's true. A Catholic school. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I wasn't. And, I wasn't there, but apparently I remember it better than you do. And I remember when I taught religion with two nuns. Yes. There you go. And Engdahl, I believe you are at the top of a mountain singing. Um, I don't know, songs on your guitar when you met your lovely wife. Right. Fairies. Pretty sure it was Edelweiss, right? Yes, you were singing Edelweiss. How did you guys meet? Um, We had a mutual friend, and I was actually hosting a song circle in my living room. (laughs) (laughs) And my friend had gone to see her art show. (laughs) And she also sang some songs there, and he said, well, you should come to this song circle that I go to. And so we met in my living room. Oh, that's so sweet. Gosh. Okay, all right, so there you go. What's and this? the best story, the best part of the story is that, like, you know, so we were all these songwriters sharing our new songs and getting feedback from each other and all of that, and this new girl shows up and with this beautiful voice and these wonderful songs, and, like, there was – serious competition to walk her to her car when she left. Oh. There were like five of us walking her to her car. <laughs> and you won the competition? Won. Eventually, eventually. Eventually. Oh, that's so sweet. <sighs> All right, so remember those moments. You might think that you took one look at that person and thought, I recognize them as an attractive human with a very symmetrical face. But according to science, it's your subconscious playing matchmaker. Your subconscious processed their hair, their smell, their demeanor, their jawline or birthing hips and said, yep, this one is worth feeling pukey over. Then comes the rush of hormones. All right, here comes some big words. Responding to cues from the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland releases norepinephrine, dopamine, and phenylethylamine, Mm. which is a natural amphetamine also called the molecule of love. We'll get back to that amphetamine part, by the way. Uh, Also estrogen and testosterone. This chemical cocktail produces the euphoria of new love and all the shenanigans that go along with it, such as like punching guys in the kidney on the way to drop Audrey off to her car. I know you did it. Infatuation begins to normalize typically 6 to 24 months into a relationship as the attachment hormones, now we're talking about vasopressin and oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, they start to kick in. You're out of the cuckoo crazy brain phase and into the let's make a baby brain phase Mm -hmm. because vasopressin and oxytocin are also responsible for a mother bonding with her baby. Oh, this is where love becomes a warm, snuggly blanket. So, even though love sickness has been around since the days of Solomon and well before, after all, he's the one who said, comfort me with apples for I am lovesick, it wasn't until 1979 that Dr. Dorothy Tenov coined a phrase for it. Limerence. You what? Heard that before? Yeah, I know. What a weird word. Limerence. It's like if limerick and, I don't know. Ants. Ants came together. So, what's the difference between love and limerence? Well... Some experts believe that limerence is what everyone goes through with a new love. Others believe limerence is only those for extreme cases where you obsess over someone at the expense of your career, family, or health. One expert described it as obsessive-compulsive disorder combined with addiction. Because remember, we talked about 
phenylethylamine, the natural <laughs> amphetamine that gets released when you're in the infatuation phase. Apparently, your limerent brain is the way a drug addict feels trying to get their next fix, except your next fix is the possibility of running into that certain someone at the water cooler. Limerence can last years, even decades. And it can be pretty destructive to your happiness and the happiness of those around you since you're basically constantly chasing a high. And that high is new infatuation. Uh, also, in Googling and researching limerence, I found out that it's also a Norwegian luxury brand watchmaker on Kickstarter. <laughs> it's also how I feel when I come to record this podcast. Oh, <laughs> Schmoopy! So there you have it. That's love sickness. We're sick. Tomorrow's the day of love. Love sick. The science of love sickness. So you can woo your schmoopy by reminding them what it felt like and all the hormones that were flooding their brain when you guys all met however many years ago. 20 something years ago. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. But we still love them. Uh, that's the show, I guess. I don't know. The postcards keep coming in thanks to our own uncle traveling Matt. If you remember the Fraggle Explorer on Fraggle Rock who sends Gobo postcards from his adventures in the world. You've never seen Fraggle Rock, bro. Rick, you've seen Fraggle Rock, right? Of course. You remember Uncle Traveling Matt. Well, our, our Uncle Traveling Matt is 50 billion cent because he sent a card from Boston and India. So wow. thank you for still sending those in. I appreciate it since I stopped asking for them a long time ago. But um, 50 billion cent, keep sending them in. Is he also the one who said that you guys should be Fraggles? Uh, I don't believe so, because that was a that was a listener at the one event. Yeah, yeah. He said that you were Boober and I was Red, <laughs> which is so right. That's so right. You're such a Boober. If you say so. Anyway, so yeah, that's the show. It's edited lyrically by Rick Engdahl with flowers in his hair and fairies floating around the room. We can see them. Oh, again, that's probably the day quill at work, isn't it? <laughs> Ugh, woof. All right. So, uh, yeah, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody, and happy Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm.